Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Tyler Bradley at Bradley Vineyards in Elkton. It's uh, August 21st, 2019. Thanks so much for joining us today, Tyler. Uh, the important question, uh, why wine? I was born into it is the easy answer. Um, I, uh, my, my father and mother uh, started in the wine industry before I was born, and um, I was exposed to wine before I knew what was even going on, and uh, and so I came by it very honestly, I guess, is the short answer. We didn't take a direct route here, so tell us about kind of uh, leaving and, and what made you decide to come back. Sure. Uh, so I grew up in Elkton. Elkton is a very small town, um, rural community in Oregon. The town itself is about 200 people and hasn't changed since I was born, you know. and. Uh, the uh, surrounding area, the zip code, is probably 1,500, 2,000 people. It's very small. And um, I've always loved it, and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that my parents were very good about pushing me to see more of the world than just my immediate surroundings. So um, I was encouraged to not just go to, you know, undergraduate but I like went to Oregon State not very far away but I was also encouraged to see the world and um, they facilitated travels at an early age and again encouraged me beyond um, even college even during college they encouraged me to do what I wanted to do versus what I may inherit someday um, and uh, even so at Oregon State, I declared and or um, I spent a good year or so as an enology viticulture major and then shifted per my parents' encouragement um, because I was, I was challenged and I had scholarships to meet and uh, science is a tough one, you know? <laughs> and uh, I do love science and am science-minded, but C's were difficult for a scholarship and uh, while my ad academic advisor was like, C's are how science works, <laughs> C's pass, uh, I was like, I gotta, I gotta get through with some money <laughs> still. So I ended up uh, switching to what my focus was a lot in high school and college was like leadership development through the future farmers of America. And so I uh, I, I went into speech communication, was hired by the National FFA organization, and then and did quite a bit of work for them, especially in the summer times in D.C., uh, kind of leadership development stuff, which led me to uh, my early career in Indianapolis of like uh, curriculum development for their leadership programs. Um, and that just opened a door for me in a bigger world and um, I started to walk through different opportunities that sort of climbed me up the corporate ladder and uh, I moved to Chicago and 
and then back to Indianapolis and then ultimately back here when um, when my dad passed away I was um, called to rise to the occasion and keep things rolling and uh, apply I guess the foundation that I didn't know was there uh, from my youth and also the uh, the education and skill sets that I'd acquired in my early career um, I think those were the bigger priority. Dad and I talked a lot about coming home um, under a capacity in which maybe I'd market wine or sell wine or something along those lines. Um, so he recognized and, and my both of my parents recognized that my skill sets weren't going to necessarily be what he knew of farming, uh, but that maybe I could add value to our uh, repertoire. So when you when you left when you started working back east Midwest did you did you have the inclination that you would come back at some point was that you're kind of in the back of your head it it was certainly in the back of my head though it was a scary place to visit I I was afraid that I was too too big for this place that uh, I'd I'd seen too much and and couldn't come back to a simple place like Elkton um, however you know. These crossroads that I'd hit at these um, corporate gigs, it would always come down to a conversation with my dad and I talking about, there's always a place for you. We'll figure out where you are here if you want to come home. And again, I would just be a little too afraid, I think, and or maybe stubborn that I wanted to find my own path uh, at that time. Uh, but, you know, it, it turns out that this is like, this is my natural rhythm, you know. Um, I had no idea that that what I thought was uh, I'd outgrown is actually exactly where I belong. And uh, it took a it took a couple years, maybe three, to like really feel reconnected with this place. But um, it is I, I I've never disliked it, and I love it even more than I did when I was growing up. So take me take me back to you lost your father. You're, you're coming back. Uh, you're not exactly sure what your what your role is going to be if you're going to want to be there. Uh, when you decide that that's something you're going to you're going to try to take over, tell me about the next step for you. Learning how to do what you now do. So I actually I was like I came out for dad's um, service and was like I'm staying. Like I'm I don't need to go back. I'll figure all that. I'll go back to pack up, but I'll just stay. Um, I was still employed in Indianapolis at the time, and I was ready to just walk. And um, per my mother's and family's insistence, it was like, go wrap things up and decide. Take a few months, we have time. It was January, so everything was dormant in the vineyard, and we had a few months. And I, I knew leaving that I would be back, and that that was the... I was going back to Indiana to put my ducks in a row so I could come home. Um, I was dating someone at the time. Uh, we were pretty newly dating. Uh, that really threw us for a whirlwind. Um, being, you know, having lost my dad, who was one of—I mean, he was my hero—and uh, and then and then deciding I'm moving across the country, and she decided to attach on to that and 
and we made the move together. It was the most challenging thing I'd ever done. It didn't work out, <laughs> you know, our relationship didn't work out because uh, it was just a little too much to handle. But um, it was scary. I was um, very unsure that I could even handle it. Um, about two weeks before moving to Elkton, I get a call, well, I don't know, a month before, I'd, I'd made the decision I'm coming to Elkton and I was offered a position with another winery in Elkton. And it was a very entry level, non-frilly position that I was like, great, at least I'll get an hourly paycheck and, um, and I'll be able to somehow figure out how to carve out a position for myself at Bradley. And, um, and two weeks before coming, uh, the competitor, River's Edge Winery, offered me a more attractive salaried position. And I said, I would love to accept that I've already accepted a position. I'm just like this, this small town mm -hmm. dynamic coming back where I'm like, I'm polite and I've already accepted something. I'm like, what do I do? And he's like, just say you got a better offer. Haven't you been in the world, you know? <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, okay. So I said that and he understood and, and that was that. I, I became River's Edge's assistant winemaker and uh, Mike and Vani being biochemists who are natural and or trained, you know, teachers. It's just been a perfect fit. I, I'm, a, I'm a learner and um, I do have, I, I minored in chemistry. Uh, I love science uh, though, <laughs> though I didn't get the best grades in it and they're phenomenal teachers and uh, dad always said that if I wanted to do this the hard part of like the vines being established and the wine process being established the hard parts done I can learn those things mm -hmm. and that what's more valuable is that I've had some more um, I guess relevant in terms of marketing and the modern, uh, you know, selling space. Mm -hmm. I just have a little more experience that can be applied and um, and val it's, it's a valuable skill set to bring to a small place like Elfin. So tell me a little bit about the history here at Bradley. Uh, obviously, early on, Oregon wine industry and the first in the area. So tell me about how Bradley got here in the first place and sort of what you, what you walked into when you came back? Uh, well, so um, Mike and Vonnie Lant of River's Edge, they were at the Elkton's first winery, but it was, you know, decades after the first vineyards went in. And uh, they actually purchased some vines from the man who sort of, I don't know, twisted my dad's arm or convinced him to plant vin a vineyard, uh, Ken Thomason was sort of the original pioneer of the area. Um, and my father was, he was building houses in Douglas County and he was originally from California, but he was trying to establish a career that would be more um, like, um, uh, oh gosh, not depression, what is that term? Not the depression, but like, a, I'm blanking, like in an econo economic sense, uh, a recession, a recession. recession -proof. So he wanted a recession-proof career, and he was thinking farming, 
and um, Christmas trees were what he thought was maybe maybe what was going on in Oregon. And I, I, I'm not exactly sure of the timeline and or how long it took for him to be persuaded, but I understand that Ken, who has whose vineyards are just about, I don't know, half a mile on the same hillside as the crow flies. Uh, he, he mentioned that there's a big open site ready to be developed to be the biggest place in the area. I'll get you started. Vineyards are what you need to plant. So 83, dad planted. Um, and it took him a long time. I think you have him documented as saying in his uh, interview with you guys that it took him like seven years to get rolling because he had to he had to hand water and uh, he had a lot of vines and I meet people still to this day who say that they helped get this place rolling. <laughs> it was years of work. So um, kids were here watering and 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 just helping keep things somewhat sound and and eventually got a crop off of it. What's funny is that. He planted it two years before I was born, and then five years after I was born. I'm, I'm a conscious, maybe, I mean, I'm walking around, maybe helping, I don't know, five years old, he's getting his first crop, that's pretty crazy. And, um, and so I spent a lot of my childhood here, um, and we farmed, uh, we raised livestock primarily as kids, we were 4-H and FFA kids, but um, we were in the vineyard a lot, I got to help uh, install a second installation in our vineyard, which is planted in 2001. And that was sort of in the spring summer. Um, so I, I got to see and experience that. And ultimately from that, um, from growing up here, I, I, to echo something I said earlier, I just didn't know how much I was being educated at the time. And, and coming back and there were being kind of Forced into it, I'm realizing that, wow, I, I have a decent foundation of um, understanding of at least vine mechanics and what what makes this place operate. So you come back and you're, and you're working for Mike and Bonnie and, and, and trying to get your, your get your kind of bearings array in there. Um, tell me about learning the actual art of winemaking and, and sort of developing your winemaking philosophy and maybe how that's changed since you started. I, uh, I have always appreciated that we and River's Edge both just, well, we're just very fortunate to have old vines that produce really dependable fruit. And so that's, that's the philosophy that we've always had was, was trust the vineyard to do the work and get out of the way. And, um, and that makes it actually quite easy um, to make wine. I, I, as long as we're paying attention on the front end and we pick at the right time, I, I, that's, if we pick at the right time, we're done. That's it. Like the game over. It's like going to be an awesome wine. Mm -hmm. And I was challenged. 2014 was my first year. We missed a couple of uh, crucial picks. The Riesling was overripe for sure. Um, but the funny thing about uh, an established vineyard is even if you miss the pick date, the fruit that you get is going to be as good as you can possibly get at whatever stage it's at. So um, the 14 Riesling, though it's a dessert style wine, 
it's one of the best dessert Rieslings out there, in my opinion, but in others' opinions too. And um, and these 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 vines just don't quit. We um, we uh, we have these widely spaced rows. Uh, we pretty much just leave them to their own. If you get any pictures of the vines, very natural kind of um, trellis system. Uh, they have wires, but but because of the spacing, we really don't thin. We prune and we sucker, and uh, we let the canopy protect from the rain and the sun. And usually, by mid well these days, mid September late September we're picking mm -hmm. and we're picking really really high quality and very clean fruit so um, I the the philosophy is just inborn it's not it's not anything that is um, uh, there's no very there's no real <laughs> wisdom behind it it's it's an authentic and I think very Oregonian approach to winemaking is grow something as naturally as possible and make it as naturally as possible um, something that can age and be appreciated for what it was at the time and how it evolves over time um, and uh, I think unfortunately a lot of uh, wine these days and Oregon wine is falling under this um, umbrella too too much of it is just being made to be consumed right now and uh, and we're on a bit of a slower calendar out here where we just want it to be what it's going to be and we'll release it when it's ready and or when the last vintage sells out. I mean, it just sort of works out that way for us. Was there something about the winemaking process or, or being a winemaker that surprised you that you weren't prepared for? Hmm. Um, I guess maybe our, our philosophy is pretty relaxed. And I, from whom I've met in the industry, I would say that's unusual. Uh, I think a lot of people stress out about their wines and grapes and all of it, all the time. And I think the biggest lesson dad taught me was like, let's say that this rain doesn't stop. Okay, next year we'll have a good year. That this year, this year was almost perfect and then rain came, okay. Oh well, you know, like that's all that we can work with is is the weather and and our place in this world and and like we have to just accept what will be and I again I'm very fortunate the the bad years quote unquote are phenomenal. We have some of the best pinots out there in the bad years, so. I'm just like, frankly, and I shouldn't say this too loudly, but uh, I've been like looking forward to a cool rainy year because we've just had, since I've been back, we've only had hot, phenomenal years, you know? And like, we'll shine brighter probably in a bad year because everybody's having awesome wines right now. But in bad years, our old vines still produce a dynamic wine. So... I don't know. I just I feel very fortunate. I feel very comfortable, and that's quite the opposite of where I felt. You know, five years ago, I felt somewhat forced. I felt I felt the fortune. I felt all that 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 good fortune of being in my place, mm -hmm. but I also felt very overwhelmed and um, 
scared mm -hmm. that I wouldn't be able to do it. But the fact is, Dad already did everything. It's all done. I just have to be the facilitator, basically, you know? Don't screw it up. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no pressure. <laughs> no pressure. Uh, tell me about that. You talk about the kind of overwhelmed, uh, kind of lack of confidence when you start. Is there a moment that you remember where you felt like it's going to be okay? I, I got this. I can do this. Or, or a vintage? Was there something? Was there something that happened that you're just like, I'm, yeah. I'm a winemaker now? You know, I think, I, I think that uh, I kind of forced myself in 15 to own it by um, adjusting our label some. I'd, I'd been thinking about how our label could evolve for a while, long before I'd, I'd uh, joined the team, as it were. But, um, you know, I, like there's value to, we we're only a state fruit, but nowhere on our label did it say a state, you know? And, and little things like that. I thought we could update the graphic. I thought we could bring our our branding a little bit more uh, to the forefront on the label. And, uh, and so in 15, I decided to claim that marketing side and just be like, why don't we update our label? This will be my transition point. We'll look at our timeline and like 15 will be that time and that vintage that Tyler claimed it. It transitioned from he, I gave dad all the credit for 14 because it was just, I showed up, grapes were there, we took the grapes, you know, and made great wine. Um, 15 was my first full vintage, so a label change was when I claimed it. I don't know that I really have felt it until uh, maybe this year, 19. Uh, I've been feeling much more competent. Um, and my, my personal explanation is, um, I think that, well, if the math checks out, if you've read any of the Gladwell's tipping point, uh, 10,000 hours is expertise. And I think that I'm not near expertise level, but around 10,000 hours is like five years of pretty much being focused on something. And that's where I'm at. Uh, so I think I'm getting close to competency on our our products, uh, and I'm always hesitant to call myself a winemaker because most winemakers I meet can spout about most wines. Uh, I I can't. We, I got our I got our menu down somewhat, uh, and I'm feeling pretty good talking about it. Um, and if I can continue to hone that, that's great and maybe adding a little bit of uh, outside knowledge throughout would be good too. <laughs> you talked about bringing that kind of sales marketing background to, to this. Tell me about what you, what you saw about marketing selling Oregon wine, especially non-Willamette Valley wine when you took over and sort of the, the, the process you've had to go through to, to, work on, to work on improving the selling. You know, um, my, I guess, most relevant background is that I, I somehow found myself in like a social media director role uh, for a pretty big company for a while. And, um, and I've found that that is a, uh, it's a it's very, I mean, it's an extremely useful tool uh, to be tapped into right now. Uh, it's pretty quiet out there in Oregon wine, honestly, on the social media front. Uh, I really hope that more of the um, relevant brands who are cool start tapping into social media because 
Uh, it, it spreads faster than anything. Um, but uh, I don't know. I, I think that um, my opinions of Oregon wine have shifted quite a bit. When I was in Chicago working, I thought that Oregon wine was like the the mecca. You know, I, I and maybe maybe in 2011 through 13 it was more so, but I think it still is somehow out there. Like Oregon wine is pretty major, and yet I'm extremely disappointed in Oregon wine for the most part. I I honestly think that like. Um, I think a lot of the Oregon in Oregon wine has been lost. Um, I think that Oregonians have a kind of, Oregonians prioritize food and drink to the point of, they, they spend a lot of their paycheck on good food and wine and drink. I mean like at beer, food, at distilled spirits, whatever, they're spending a, a decent amount of their money on what they're putting in their bodies. and. Um, it used to be that I saw that Oregon wineries were making wines for those people, and yet nowadays, I, the, and, and why I thought it was a big thing in Chicago is that the Oregon wines I see, they're made for the mass market. And it's a thinner, it's a thinner Pinot, it's a higher priced Pinot. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's not what I think we were established on, um, and I think more little houses or authentic places need to be uh, directing their focus to what Oregonians drink because Oregonians I believe lead the market and so while maybe there's a bigger market for weaker wines um, if you're gonna focus on making good wines Oregon's gonna lead the way Oregonians will buy it now and then the rest of the world will figure it out eventually. But I don't know. It's all, it's all you know, you're trying to push a product. And, and we're at a small scale. So it's easy for me to be part of more of a tourism market where people are finding me and a high quality kind of low price point wine. Uh, it's, it's, I'm, in a, I'm just in a very fortunate position to where I can make something really dynamic um, at a fair price and also still like ha keep the lights on you know uh, a lot of people are struggling to just push out product to keep revenue at a rate in which they're able to employ their people and keep their fancy tasting room up to speed um, we're simple out here and humble and and it's it's a very nice lifestyle so you're out here in Elkton, which was previously part of the Umpqua Valley AVA, became its own AVA uh, not too long ago. Tell me about what you've seen change as a result of that, and, and, and if that has sort of put Elkton on the, on the map in its way. You know, for years, we started making Pinot in 2001, and from that point until 2013, our label said Oregon Pinot, uh, because we knew that our Pinot was better than the greater Umpqua Valley because it's a cooler, cooler environment. And um, and now, 2013, uh, when Terry Bramborg, John Bradley, Mike Lant had really pushed hard to get that AVA um, approval, 
Uh, now we put Elkton, a Elkton, Oregon on our labels and, and with pride because we are, in our opinion, we're, we're Southern Oregon's Pinot capital. Mm -hmm. And and anymore, I'd have to say, we, we're, I think we could become Oregon's secret Pinot epicenter in, in that the Pinots are substantial uh, and, and uh, yet delicate and like they have some body and substance and they're, they're, they're you know some people hate California Pinots because they're just fruit bombs and then some people hate Willamette Valley Pinots because they're thin and then we're right in the middle of those two places and so we really do have a very nice uh, presentation of Pinot Noir year in year out um, and the thing that's changed the most is the schedule. Uh, most people say the average harvest is in September, but average harvest in Oregon is October for sure. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're seeing it creep into September, but um, last year, we, I think we finished harvest like the first week in October and people were like, man, what a late year. <laughs> and it was like, it, no, we didn't get rain. It was a perfect year and, and growing up, it was, I would be in school, it was well into October, rain for days, I mean, picking in the rain, mm -hmm. mold everywhere. I mean, it was just like, it was a different world. Mm -hmm. And things have changed, things have changed. And, and it's not, no complaints really, the grapes are happy. Um, and we have roots that are deep enough that they stay happy, even in years that were threatening drought. Um, our vines tend to still produce really high quality stuff. What do you hope that consumers take away from wines you've made, either, either here or at River's Edge? What do you hope that consumers get from, a, from your wine? I think, um, gosh, ideally, I'd like, <laughs> I'd like a consumer to know that like, a wine doesn't have to be a natural wine if you're on that end of the spectrum for it to be outstanding in fact a lot I don't know a lot of natural wines are not outstanding there's a lot of faults in natural wines we're very close to being a natural wine producer we do very very little we're extremely minimalist in terms of what we do to our wines so I would say you don't need a lot of ingredients and you don't need no ingredients <laughs> as long as you're doing it in a traditional fashion working with high quality stuff uh, you can make an, a, a, an affordable and very delicious and ageable product uh, that that is uh, it may be it may not be very accessible. That is probably the downside. Mm -hmm. You might have to work a little bit to find the people like us that are out there, but it'll be worth it mm -hmm. is is um, especially with the internet being available, you know you can get anything you want at any time from anywhere. <laughs> so uh, look for the people who are the small guys producing honest products from if you if you can find it old vines if not responsibly farmed vines and you're gonna have uh, a, a pretty nice experience in wine I think okay. so obviously you're, you're you're carrying on legacy that your, your father started and your, and your mother started tell me what that what that kind of means to you as a second-generation uh, vintner now 
At this point in my career, uh, it means everything and, and I mean nothing. I just don't have any need to um, claim anything, you know. Uh, this is a pretty amazing gift that I've been given to do something that I didn't know I loved so much. And, uh, and if I can raise up my parents uh, for that for as long as possible, I will. Um, I don't know if they intended that to be my future, but the fact that they built it for me is uh, I'm just in debt, you know? And uh, I'll continue to work my butt off to keep it going as long as uh, I've got uh, the energy. <laughs> awesome. Um, obviously, a, a small community here. Uh, tell me what it's like working uh, so closely with family and in a small community like this uh, in such a small, small part of a bigger industry. It's uh, mostly confusing to outsiders. They just don't really get how one day I'm at River's Edge and one day I'm out here and like, what's that even mean? And are you competitors? And uh, it's, it's hard to fathom, but it's a com it is, it's a community. The River's Edge and Bradley wines wouldn't have, um, I don't think they would have uh, blossomed quite as well had both parties individually done there. Bradley may not have a label to this day. We may still just sell all our crop. But um, we, th I mean, dad, I, I credit dad as the single individual who established the Savier. Um, people came here looking for ground to plant and he would facilitate what properties to look at all the way through planting. I mean, all the way through training, all the way through harvest. Mm -hmm. He just helped establish this area in a way that is hard to really uh, fathom that one person could have all these touch points and, and that this year it was this family, this year it was this family, and he just sort of got them all rolling. Um, and it all started from the training he got from Ken. Mm -hmm. And then it paid forward to the wine training. Mike trained dad how to make wine. And, and that, that, uh, that whole rhythm of just helping each other and sharing knowledge and uh, it, it's just carried through. And, most of the businesses in town still to this day share in press opportunities or um, I mean shoot if we're if we're pruning we schedule out pruners for every vineyard you know like we we share schedules so that all value is added and nobody is paying extra for any given thing we try to we try to just compile everybody on the same schedule. Picking is extremely, uh, you'd think it'd be challenging with, we have a dozen plus vineyards out here, but somehow with largely one crew, we managed to hop from vineyard to vineyard, from day to day, from week to week, and clear it all out in a way that nobody tends to get very upset at one another. I mean, we just all work together, so. Mm -hmm. It's neat. If it gets much bigger, it may be trickier. <laughs> kind of like Oregon and Yeah, yeah.
Speaking of that, uh, tell me about what you see for the future for both yourself here in River's Edge uh, and, and also for sort of El the Elkton AVA as you look ahead. I, I don't see Elkton changing a ton in my lifetime. Uh, if we get a brewery and a hotel, maybe that will change. Uh, I, if we had some accommodations for people to stay and, and beer, I honestly think that would really take us to the next level. Um, but I, I, I think that um, Elkton is in this funny little Bermuda Triangle of Oregon that's hard to get to, and thus it's somewhat insulated from commercialism, which is great. Honest entrepreneurs will find their way here, uh, live cheaply, and build businesses. And we'll see Elkton slowly continue to exist. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know as far as Oregon in general. I really believe in uh, Southern Oregon's future. There's a lot of diversity in wine in Southern Oregon that is much less so in the Northern Valley. So I, I think that we're in a neat um, transition point where Southern Oregon will um, see some tremendous growth and um, attention. However, I, I wouldn't anticipate Elkton getting a ton of that because we're right on that border of Willamette and Southern, and we're Pinot country. So we're nothing new, really. We're old school Oregon, but um, we've been here forever and we will be. And, and uh, I don't know, I just, it's like, it's a very, very unique, um, quiet and undisturbed place that I just can't see changing. My vision for Elkton is Carlton one day. Mm -hmm. I'd love it to be a little Carlton where it's just tasting rooms and vineyards and uh, total wine uh, country. But we'd need, we need places for people to stay before that happens. Mm -hmm. So um, we'll see. Sure. What about the future for, for Bradley? Do you have any, any, any changes in mind? Any, uh, any cool new things you're thinking about trying? Uh, Bradley, uh, we won't do anything drastic. We're going we're gonna to do an event a year probably, maybe two, like concerts. Um, maybe expand our agritourism overnight accommodations thing. Um, and maybe plant some more grapes. Uh, but as far as wine production goes, I'll only scale up as our wine club grows, uh, we're in a very comfortable position of making a very small amount of wines and we have a very devoted wine club who loves our stuff and is doing a pretty good job of buying us out of stuff. So <laughs> I'll, I'll need to start scaling that up a bit, but um, the smaller batch I can keep it, the higher the quality, the, um, the more loyal our customers will continue to be. and and. I'm looking for that long-term existence more so than just like a flash in the pan, um, you know, big popular thing. Mm -hmm. uh, if it takes a little work on your part to find us, uh, you'll appreciate us even more. <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you mentioned the agritourism, we're, we're here in your yurt, so tell us how, how this came to be and, and, and how it's being used. 
Uh, this was a, a vision of my father's years ago. Uh, mom and dad put a yurt up. Cottage Grove is home to Pacific yurts and uh, they shopped for a 30-foot diameter yurt and um, put one up and and it wasn't until I moved back in 14 that we put it on Airbnb and we use it as a uh, an incentive to wine club members to join like again we don't have accommodations in Elkton so it's like I say if you rent a night in our yurt you get a night if you're a wine club member so you get two nights for the price of one and you get a private vineyard to yourself in a pretty luxurious glamping experience <laughs> and uh, it's been working out really well I mean it stays booked um, it's a really it's a pretty cool it's it's on YouTube you know we got people who are uh, pretty into it uh, spreading the word more so than we are and uh, I just like that um, we have like just dad had the vision of like virality before virality was a thing and um, he he built this thing that's off the grid it has no cell service or Wi-Fi we have a record player in records and it's like right now more than ever that's needed where you can just come connect with whoever you need yourself your partner your kids your dog whoever you need just come and get quiet and listen to music and and be uninterrupted from nature and uh, wine you know yeah it's not too shabby <laughs> who knew there were yurt fanatics out there who were gonna spread the word right yeah it's are. happening yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, as you know, uh, Linfield has a wine studies program. You've got a wine studies major here sitting uh, watching this interview. Uh, what, what would your words of wisdom be to someone who wanted to enter the industry today coming out of, uh, coming out of school like that? Gosh, I, I guess I'd, I'd say um, grab onto anything and, and, and just say yes. Um, if you can work in Oregon, great. If you can go to New Zealand, do it. Uh, I mean, go anywhere and work for anybody in wine and walk if you hate it. Um, like, there's enough going on in wine, even in Oregon, that, and there are enough egos and jerks that if you just jump in, you're probably gonna find somebody you don't like. You'll learn something from everybody. So it's, it's like low risk to jump in. There's enough, there's enough going on that you get the, you have the pleasure of finding your fit in this market now. Um, and, and West Coast alone, Washington to California alone, you're, you're, you, you will find something uh, that's perfect for you. I think Oregon is full of opportunity. Um, there's tons of small wine producers who just who just need help if you're able or willing to take a room <laughs> for a few months an intern you're gonna learn so much and and the more you learn with these people the more pe connections you meet the sooner you'll be in Europe doing the same thing and and um, and the more you can just build that repertoire of like travel wine different experiences then when you come back to start either your own label or work as an assistant and start to influence a label, um, you're gonna have a 
uh, resume of, that's unique unto yourself, and that's what makes it the art. You know, there's plenty of science to this, but your experiences and um, and world uh, observations are going to be what make your wine special. Um, there's, it's either that or the site, you know. Uh, wine is about the site or the person, and m sometimes maybe both. But um, for me, it's the site, and for anyone studying it and being passionate about it, I would say go as far as possible and as many places as possible and different regions and just. Uh, it's a huge world that you won't get exhausted trying to study, so <laughs> just try and get it all. Talk about the differences in the wines that you've made versus the wines your dad was making. Okay, uh, well, so uh, my father learned from Mike Lant, you know, and Mike, super traditional. Mike mentioned that he learned from one guy, basically, you know, and so... Um, there was a pretty small window of wines, uh, and, and frankly, we're only working with four grapes at Bradley, so we don't have a ton of creative room, but um, I don't know, I, my, my philosophy coming into this whole project was, Mike is finite, he will retire and go away, you know, he, he'll, he'll be gone, and he's the, he's the teacher and the biochemist, so if I want to experiment, now is the time. He can fix anything I mess up. <laughs> so, um, uh, really it started with uh, a reserve Baco Noir. Uh, Dad, I think Dad really coined Baco, or like kind of cornered the Baco, if there is a Baco market in, I don't know, Umpqua Valley, Bradley Baco has been quite the thing for a long time. Uh, it's, it's unique, it's powerful, it's very, very good. And in 15, that was the year that I decided to claim as like my transition point, I, um, I, decided, I tried to do a reserve. I was like, let's just see what happens if we oak it up more for more time. And it worked out very well, it was really nice wine. Um, uh, another one, Gewürztraminer is kind of an unpopular wine, uh, one that we see other wineries buy from us and then have a hard time selling. They keep lowering the prices and all this. I was made privy to orange wines uh, in 15 and I understood that Gewürz could be made into an orange wine and I knew we had serious Gewürz. So I, my, entire philosophy is we have really good grapes if anything has ever been done uniquely with any grape we're growing we'll enter that world and be the top of it or, or, or close to so we made an orange wine out of Gewürz that it was a small batch and it was super weird but it was it, it hit well and it sold fast and we have another batch that's even better now and that we'll bottle soon and it's it's things like that um, I've recruited a friend who now works with me at River's Edge, who's pushed the envelope, now we're making Petalant Naturel wines. So we have, Bradley has his first bubbles that slap a label on it this summer finally, and we'll have it out the door. And, and, uh, and that's what I think I didn't know I'd bring, was that I could push the envelope in terms of the winemaking too. 
Um, there's some relevant things that are happening in the world of wine that we could do that we shouldn't be afraid to and uh, and and I'm more of a risk taker than maybe a lot of my family so uh, it's a low risk you know we take a few of the grapes in and we try something new and it turns out to be pretty tasty uh, it, it's it's a it's a fun experiment well, thank you so much for your time today, for your answers, for your hospitality down here and everything else, and we'll let you off the hook here. Thanks a lot. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.